Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse. Good morning and uh, welcome again Living Word Bible Church to our video recorded sermon. Hopefully this will be the last one now. Our next live service is on Good Friday at 9am here at Modbury Special School. Uh, a special welcome to any who are logging in online and joining us for our Sunday morning service on the 10th of April. We're picking up today where we left off last time in Philippians 3 and we're looking at uh, just the next uh, few verses we had one to three last time, this time uh, four to seven of Philippians three. I'll do a tiny brief cap, uh, recap shortly. So, hey, let's begin. Let me tell you about when I was a, uh, a wee lad, uh, not so long ago. I keep saying that. This is one of, this is one of those jokes, it's just wearing thin, isn't it? But <laughs> <coughs> I ought to say, the video may cut cut out a few times, not cut out, I'll cut the video. It's just because of my cough. You don't want to be listening to that. I'll edit those bits. But when I was younger, a uh, teenage, uh, back in the UK, in uh, Friar Park in Wensbury in the West Midlands of the United Kingdom. It's right in the middle of England. Um, I remember Guy Falking. So, um, on November the 5th in the UK, uh, there's Bonfire Night. You may be aware of it. It's, it's, uh, it, it celebrates, well, it's a, it's a strange word. It remembers the event in Parliament where Guy Fawkes tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And so on November the 5th, when kids are building up the November the 5th, kids all around the UK make little uh, humans, well, no humans, little uh, whatever you call them, I can't even think of the word now, but uh, not a dummy, uh, not a mannequin, uh, something of that nature, something that resembles Guy Fawkes, okay? And what we do, we put him on the street, and uh, we stand in the street somewhere, and then as someone walks by, you say, penny for the guy. It's a way of, <laughs> it's a way of raising money uh, for youngsters. So here's me with my guy on the pavement, there and asking people for a penny for a guy we don't really want a penny it's just we're starting at the minimum currency you see uh, and this one guy comes and he empties his pocket and he gives me all of his loose change it's incredible i think i think you know i've hit the 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 jackpot he gives me all of his coins they're all the same uh, they're all the same coin they're half pence coins and i was over the moon look half pence isn't a lot but you could buy half penny sweets well back then you see uh, one sweet for half a pence and so i was over the moon went on a bit later and then went down to my local shop to come buy a, a bunch of sweets with my bunch of half pennies and guess what seriously half pennies went out of legal tender that week hence why <laughs> once he, hence why this guy gave me his uh, useless, valueless, half pennies. They were no longer legal 
tender. So what do we do with that? What do I tell you that? Well, hang on, hold it in tension and I'll refer back to it shortly. But let me just give you a recap of where we were last time in chapter three, one to three, just very quickly. We had in any and every circumstance, rejoice in Jesus and his gospel. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. Not because of all the wonderful things that are positive in our lives. Yeah, of course we're to rejoice in that. But that's not Paul's point because those things change. They're always in a state of flux. Paul's point is this the way to rejoice in certain things, in Jesus, in the Lord, in his death, in sins forgiven, in peace regarded, in hope of heaven. So we're to rejoice in all circumstances. Secondly, we said we're to be alert for evil perversions of Christ's gospel of grace. That is, we have to be careful of aped faith a system of beliefs that look authentic but are fall short and paul's point is any gospel that has a reliance on works of any nature falls short of the standard that god accepts and really as we move on from that we're building on that argument or rather paul is he does for most of this chapter we're just going up to verse 7 this time our heading is this number three christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it sorry i know it sounds technical i couldn't think of anything simpler but let me just repeat that i'll try and edit the video with with information on today that's my plan at least uh, with visuals rather so the heading is this our third point in this uh, chapter three is Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. A simply put, simply put, is, is you, you can't get Christianity from any other religion. It takes the abandonment of every other religion and philosophy to enter Christianity. Here's what Paul says. Though... I myself have reason for confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. Well, Paul, who's confronted by these, this group that is pushing Judaism on the Philippian church, okay, by, by showing off their, their badge, if you like, their, their works, their means for entering the faith, showing off, as it were, their circumcision, that they're accepted by God on that basis that they accepted by god on the basis of circumcision paul takes them on because they're trying to push this onto the philippian church and so paul takes them on and he says okay then you want to talk about badges you want to talk about credentials you want to talk about works and achievement let me tell you and then he gives them this list 
circumcised on a precise day, Jew by birth, favoured by the Jewish, by being a part of a Jewish tribe, a quintessential Jew, pharisaically observing the law, number six, zealous to the point of persecuting anything that threatened Judaism, and number seven, he was faultless in his observation of the law's requirement. Paul shows me. You want to talk about achievements, accolades? Let me tell you what I have. Let me just look at them with you briefly, <laughs> expanding each one. Circumcised on the precisely required day. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was the day it was meant to be. Here's these, this group that's pushing the, 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 those in, uh, uh, where's the place? Those in, not Philadelphia, uh, is it Philistine? Uh, Philippi. Philippi, <laughs> I'm sorry, Philippi, pushing these who are off Philippi to get circumcised. And Paul's saying, hey, I was circumcised on the precisely, precisely prescribed day, the eighth day. You're talking about a true Jew. Next, he says he's Jew, not by the circumcision in adulthood, but by birth of the people of Israel. He was born a Jew. He was born with the right. Number three, he's of a favoured tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul belonged to one of the notable tribes of Israel. King Saul came from them. He's a namesake of King Saul. He's a quintessential Jew, listen, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, this came about through the Jewish people being scattered. And, uh, and so they began to refer to each other by the language they spoke, Hebrews. And so he's saying a Hebrew of the purest stock, a Jew of the purest stock. And, and someone naturally fluent in the tongue of the Hebrews. Number five, that he's a fatter... But he observed the law pharisaically in regards to the law of Pharisee. It's a term meaning if you kept something like a Pharisee, you kept it with precision. So Paul, formerly a Pharisee, here he is in regards to the law, keeping it to that degree as someone of Pharisaical background in that tone and manner. Number six, zealous to the point of persecuting anything that threatened the church. He protected Judaism with such passion that he's prepared to assassinate Christians in the process. Talk about a dedicated Jew, number seven, faultless in his observation of the law's requirements. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Again, like a Pharisee, Paul believed at least he kept endeavour to keep the law perfectly faultlessly as here's paul's point to these who are pushing judaism onto these gentile christians is that if you want to talk about keeping moses if you want to talk about mosaic righteousness if you want to talk about the torah the law hey i beat you hands down seven times over and so so whatever it is you're pushing onto these Philippian Christians, let me tell you, I've 
acquired all of that, achieved all of that, was born into all of that, okay? And still, and still, it counts as nothing any longer. But, but, in spite of all this gathering, Paul comes to realise, in spite of all his advantages, Paul comes to realise on the road to Damascus when he was going to arrest and assassinate, it seems, Christians. He has an encounter with Jesus and through that encounter realises that all of his achievements and rights count for nothing. Listen, listen. Uh, Acts 9, as he neared Damascus, the light flashed around him. He fell to the ground and says, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he responded, Lord, who are you? And this voice responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that led directly to Paul's faith in Jesus as God's son, to his conversion to Christianity, and to him now writing to Philippi, saying, look, I had all the badges, not just circumcision, but every other possible one that you could have and be born into. And yet in verse 7, he says this, but whatever was to my profit, all of that in Judaism was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And I put it. Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. Can you see what Paul is saying? My encounter was with Jesus has so fundamentally rewired my understanding of what it is to be right with God, to be in with God, to be saved as it were, that I now realise all of my Judaism, all of that gain from circumcision on the eighth day to legalistic perfection is of nil value when it comes to being right with God. But whatever was to my profit to be right with God, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What was to my advantage, says Paul, what I thought was to my advantage, I now realise it's, it's, it's to my loss, is rather worthless, valueless, bankrupt. Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. Let me take you back to that anecdote that I said at the beginning about Guy Fawkes and, and us collecting money and all those half pennies that I had. That when I came to spend to buy some sweets, lollies, sweets, okay, they were valueless because they were no longer legal tender. And here's the point, here's the point. Judaism was legal tender for a time, but only until Jesus, but only until Jesus. It's now bankrupt. But, and here's the thing, 
even whilst Judaism was legal tender, for many without Judaism, for many without, within Judaism, they didn't understand the currency and its value to the point where it had no value to them. Let me just repeat that. Even though, even when Judaism was legal tender, for many within Judaism, they had no understanding of the currency to the degree it had no value to them anyway. So yes, Judaism was legal tender until Jesus, but even for those to whom it was legal tender, most, that's a strong word, many, okay, many, we can say at least, many, for many, it was of no value, Judaism, for Jews, because they failed to understand the currency, failed to understand how it was meant to be spent, what shops took it, as it were. And here's why, let me explain what I'm, when we consider Jesus' ministry, we have to acknowledge this straight away, initially, at the outset, if you like. When we consider Jesus' ministry, we have to acknowledge, because he said so, this. He answered in Matthew 15, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, says Jesus. Here's that point, that when Jesus came, he came to Israel, not to Gentiles. He came specifically to Israel, to them. And so when we read those gospel accounts of Jesus' life in his ministry to Israel, we have to remember that's precisely what he's doing. He's speaking, preaching to Israel. So here's the question. Here's the question. And this is where Jews so disastrously have gone wrong. When he came to Israel, Jesus that is, what did he come to do for them? When Jesus came to Israel, to the Jewish nation, what did he come to do for them? Think about that. What did he come to do for them? Here it is. Listen. Matthew 4, let's go back one verse. John 8, 21. This is what he says to them in a long discourse. And you, Israelites, Jews, and you will die in your sin. That's John 8, 21. It's taken from a discourse of Jesus where he's telling them plainly and clearly that in their pre present circumstance, left as they are, they will die in their sins. Why did Jesus come to Israel? He came to Israel to save Israel, firstly Israel, from their sins. Can you see the implication of that? It's massive. He's saying to the Jewish nation, you are condemned in your current state. That's what Jesus was saying. That's why he was crucified. No one was ready for the Messiah to be telling the Israelite nation that they stood condemned, that they needed their sins forgiven, that they needed to be saved. Hence why Jesus preached. And this is why he put so many backs up, because he preached to Jews these words that are unbelievable. Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is near. Do you hear that? Jesus preached on the streets of Jerusalem to a Jewish congregation. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Can you see what he's saying? Can you understand what he's trying to convey? Your Judaism, your birthright, the tribe you belong to, the fact that you're the descendants of Abraham, the fact that you're trying to keep the law, the fact that you've been circumcised has zero value in you being right with God. You are still in your sins. You need to repent for God's kingdom is at hand and you are found wanting. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what I meant when I says that though Judaism was currency until Jesus came, legal tender until Jesus came, only some within Judaism understood the currency and had any salvific benefit for whatever was to my profit, says Paul. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul abandons Judaism. We have to understand this. This is why my heading is Christianity is <coughs> so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. Is that Paul, in order to be redeemed, technical Christian word, means to be saved, in order to have peace with God, in order to be sure of heaven, in order to be in faith, Paul couldn't transition from Judaism to Christianity. Judaism didn't build him a platform to Christianity. Judaism left him short of it. What he needed was Jesus. What he needed to do was to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Did Paul didn't become, without wanting to offend anybody here, a messianic Jew. No, I really find that an, 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 an unhelpful term. Paul didn't become a messianic Jew. No, Paul gave up Judaism. He became a Christian, a follower of Christ. We would call that from the early days of the church. Okay, that is the title that belongs to someone who believes in Jesus, who's from Judaism, that they are Christian. Paul was not a Messianic Jew. He was a Christian because he had given up Judaism. He had realized his bankruptcy, that he was no longer legal tender. He realized that even when he was legal tender, he was only legal tender for those who understood Judaism, understood how he led someone to God, and understood that it didn't save you in and of itself. Paul is a Christian, a radically new entity, a new movement, if you like, whatever else you want to call it. Paul joined something entirely new, and that joining the entrance requirement required Paul to let go of Judaism. Hence why he says these incredible words, that, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. He says that to these people who are pushing, pushing circumcision on these, on, on these Gentile Christians in Philippi. And he said, look, look, what are you trying to do? You don't understand that not the circumcision 
all the law or any aspects of Judaism can get you into Jesus, can get your sins forgiven, can save you. What was, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. As a quick aside, we're saying that, that many in Judaism never came to true faith, to true forgiveness, true relationship with God. So how did the ones that did come to genuine faith in God and have sins forgiven, how did they acquire that if Judaism is so mis widely misunderstood? It's this, it's this. Jesus explains it when he came. When he came, he explained why they were read, misreading Judaism, why they needed to repent, why they were still in their sins, why they were enemies of God. And he explained it brilliantly by this parable that he tells in Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable to those who believed Judaism made them right with God. He told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. That's Judaism. That's Judaism. This is Pharisaical Judaism, the top rung of the ladder. That, that, that you keep all of God's commandments and on that basis you come to God justified or self-justified. And here's what Jesus says in his parable. The other man was a tax collector, someone everybody knew was a sinner. You see, Jews weren't sinners, but tax collectors were. If you'd become a tax collector, you were. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you see what he's doing? Now, here's what Jesus says. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, this man, rather than the Pharisee, the lawkeeper, the Jew, the fully pledged Jew, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The point is this, the way that Judaism saved any Jew, the way Judaism made any Jew righteous, gave them peace with God, was for those Jews who, who understood that the law was not given because it could be obeyed, but that the law was given to condemn and to bring someone to their knees, to bring them humbly to God, and for them to come to God, not based on merits, but to come to God based on mercy, to cast themselves on God and say, God, I have failed before your law. I failed daily before your law. I cannot keep your law. I stand condemned before your law. Have mercy on me. And they are the Jews who were converted. They are the Jews who will be in heaven. They are the Jews such <coughs> as David. Listen to David's prayer. Here was a man who was broken. Here was a man who was converted. And so salvation for Jews was always by casting oneself on God's mercy. It was never through Judaism. 
it was never through the sacrificial system. In fact, Hebrews tells us that not a single sacrifice, not a single sacrifice atoned for sin. It's why Jesus is here in Israel saying to Jews in first century Palestine, repent, you're going to die in your sins. Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transform to it. Okay, that's the sermon. We're there, except don't go away. That, that's the exegetical aspects of the sermon. What about the application? What about the application? What do we do with this? What are we meant to do with this? I've got three applications, okay? It's not easy to apply this because we're not in that situation and by and large we're not Jews. And, and so, so it's not as though this is that relevant. And so it's relevant in this sense that we can withdraw principles from it. But the first thing that we can draw a principle is how we evangelize Jewish people. The first point is this, evangelism to Jews. Here's what Paul tells us then. We lead Jewish people to salvation, not through Judaism. No. We show them the utter bankruptcy of their religion. And we point them to Jesus, a radically new religion. We point them to Jesus' message of repentance within Judaism, repentance and faith in him. That's how we lead Jews to Jesus, to faith in Jesus. We're not just trying to add Jesus to Judaism, to Jewish people's understanding of faith. No. We're not trying to make Messianic Jews. No. We're trying to convert Jews to Jesus for them, like Paul, to take a massive, gigantic leap from Judaism to faith in Jesus. And it requires, like Paul, a complete abandonment of all the tenets and gains and accolades and achievements and merits of Judaism. Whatever was to my profit, says Paul, I count loss for the sake of Christ. As you know, later he says, he doesn't just count the loss, he counts it like poo. <laughs> Seriously. <clears throat> Seriously. Obviously, friends, we have to do this sensitively, caringly, lovingly, winsomely, prayerfully. But we have to do it. A Jew has to have a radical conversion to get their sins forgiven, to be Christian. A radical conversion. Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. B. So A was evangelism to Jews, B, evangelism to Gentiles. Us, assuming we're all Gentiles here. What do, how do we do evangelism to Gentiles? Well, it gives us the same principles. We lead our Gentile world to salvation in almost the same way as we lead Jews to salvation. We preach a message of abandoning all our achievements, all our works, all our gains, and instead taking a leap to Jesus, instead repenting of sins 
and having faith in Jesus. Here, Matthew 4, 17, we preach the same message to them. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. We preach repent for God is coming to establish his kingdom and he's going to call all to account. And we preach John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We preach exactly the same message to our Jewish friends that we're trying to bring to faith in Jesus, to our Gentile friends and neighbours that we're trying to bring to faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins, give up on your achievements and works, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition to it. And the last one, the last point, is, is to most of us here, I should imagine, preaching to Christians. So we've had evangelising Jews, evangelising Gentiles, now preaching to Christians. What do we learn from what Paul is saying when it comes to preaching to Christians? We preach to one another, to one another, to live, to live a life that is perpetually stripping. To live a life that is perpetually emptying itself. To live a life that is perpetually distancing itself from all works, from all merits, from all achievements, from all rights. Can you see what we're saying here? That what you did at your conversion what I did when I was 16 is the way that I continue my Christian life. Paul, not Paul, Augustus Top Lady, famous hymn writer in a famous hymn that was popular in Great Britain where I grew up. Augustus Top Lady penned these beautiful words, immensely insightful words in his, one of his famous hymns and he says this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Did you hear that? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how salvation comes to us. Can you see what Top Lady, top lady is implying? His hymn is a paradigm for the Christian life. We, we, we conduct ourselves in such a way daily, regularly, hourly that we're constantly stripping back stripping off uh, peeling back emptying ourselves distancing ourselves from all merit from all works from all expectations of right before god when we come to god in quiet times in prayer in our daily walk with him when we come to god we must always every occasion do so by stripping down, emptying ourselves, distancing ourselves from all of our achievements, all our statuses, whatever we've done that gives us any sense of right in God's presence. We come acknowledging that we're sinners, that we need mercy, that the best of our works is tainted with sin. We come humbly in Jesus' name, we come bowing, do we ever bow in prayer? 
We come on our knees. Have we ever been on our knees in prayer? We come with tears of repentance. When was the last time we cried, wept, because we felt the gravity of sin? We come distancing ourselves from all of our achievements and we cast ourselves on Jesus' mercy. That's how we live the Christian life. <laughs> That's how we do it hourly, daily, weekly. Whenever we come to corporate public worship on Sunday, this is how we drive to church. This is how we prepare from when we wake up to even when we go to sleep is we humble ourselves before God. We strip away all of the things that gives us a right to God's presence. We strip away all our confidence in all of our achievements, in all of our positions, in all of our works. We face our sins. We ask God's spirit to bring them to our, uh, to our memory. We repent of them. We shed tears when God so moves us. We seek mercy. And on that basis, we come to Jesus Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. That's how we come to church. We never dance our way there because, oh, aren't I doing God a favour by turning up and doing his work and praising his name? No. All the onus of favours is on God. It's his favour to welcome us to corporate worship. Sunday by Sunday. It's our responsibility before an awesome and holy God to strip away all our confidence and right to be there and come with a sense, with an utter sense of I do not belong, I do not deserve, I have no right but the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ. I count everything else a loss, rubbish, poo, and put all my confidence and cover myself in the mercy of Jesus. And that's how we turn up to public worship Sunday by Sunday. That's how we live a Christian life. That's how we approach God in prayer. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. For Christianity is so dynamically new that no religion or philosophy can transition us to it. Amen.